a Podcast One production. It is, when it comes down to it, the most basic expectation a voter can hope for. Trust. Can we trust who we elect? Do those elected trust themselves? And most of all, given the last 10 years in Australian politics, do they trust each other? I'm Anna Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, I want to explore the basic term with a big meaning, trust. My guest is the 29th Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, who is now out of politics but on a lot of bookshelves. His hefty tome at nearly 700 pages, it actually doubles as gym equipment if you wanted to, a bigger picture covers his life and life in politics. And a central theme for the latter is trust, or lack thereof, as it were. Malcolm, thank you for your time. Trust you well. I am. Thanks, Adam. You can trust that. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Now, starting this podcast, I got told by someone who was involved in politics, you'll learn a lot about politics as you go on, but you'll learn more about people. Would you say that after your 14 years in Parliament? Well, I mean, politics is about people. It's about a lot of things. It's about issues and policies. Uh, It's about vision. It's about delivery, delivering on the vision. You know, a lot of people after the big idea lose interest, uh, so you've got to follow up. But ultimately it's about people because that's what a demo- that's how a democracy works. In the book you write, politics is the art of the possible. Do the people in it make it possible or less possible? Well, I mean, you, you, can't, dis- you can't, you know, dis- distinguish politics from the people. I mean, it is about people. So that's the first point, but... You know, getting consensus among people, dealing with people, managing people, that's what politics is all about, yeah. Is there a misalignment in behaviour seen in politics as opposed to behaviour expected in terms of what you're supposed to be there for? Have we got this wrong idea about what politics should be or politicians should act? Well, no. We, I mean, we, you know, politicians in a representative democracy like ours, we elect people to parliament and, you know, the group that has a majority of members of the popular house, the lower house, the House of Reps, uh, get to form a government and they get to run the country subject to the constitution and the law and, and you know, and it's, it's a complicated system. You know, if you want, you can have a majority in the House, you very rarely have a majority in the Senate. Um, so there's a lot of negotiation and wheeling and dealing and compromise. You know, a lot of people outside of politics uh, complain that politicians compromise. Well, That's like, um, you know, criticising a politician for compromising is like criticising a fish for swimming. Uh, You know, that's that's the whole system is actually designed to facilitate compromise and agreement. That's actually what you want. You want people to uh, reach agreement, reach consensus and get on and uh, get things done. Is that, I mean, we only see on the outside looking in, we only see the policy announcement and then we hear of stories that are leaked to the media and, and through those channels, but we don't actually see that daily grind. It sounds like a grind. It sounds like sometimes it could be exhilarating. I'm not sure you could tell me about, about that effort of trying to reach compromise. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, that's your job. You know, if you want to get, if you want to get uh, something through the Senate and you need nine votes on the crossbench to get it done... You've got to work out what you need to do to get those crossbenchers to vote with you. And, you know, that that may involve deals, it may involve spending some money on a project of particular interest to a particular crossbencher. It's a, you know, that's, that's 
that's what you have to do. You've got to do what you've got to do. The system, the parliamentary system is designed, uh, particularly with the Senate, to, you know, require governments to reach compromise and so forth all the time. And sometimes you reach compromises and agreements with the opposition too. Is it hard to let go sometimes? Or is it you, you always come back to that fact that you need to? Well, well, you're not a dictator, Adam. I mean, this is the, this is the, the big, <laughs> just as well, uh, this is the big mistake that a lot of people make when they talk about politics. And they, you know, there is a lot of sanctimonious criticism of politicians from people who say, oh, why did so-and-so compromise on that? Why did he or she, you know, um, switch course and do this and sidestep and, you know, that's the reality is if you want to be, if you just, if you don't want to work with anyone else, you'll end up having no authority and no government at all. So it's a, you know, it's, it is a di- very, very difficult business and a lot of the personalities are very difficult and they don't always behave rationally, but they've all got a vote. So, you know, Senator Bloggs may be a complete nut job. He may be as mad as a cut snake. Uh, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular here. It's just an example, just a theoretical example. But you know what? He's got a vote. He has got a vote. And the people put him there. And so you have to respect that. And that's why you have to be prepared to talk to everyone and uh, get things done. And the same thing applies within your own party room. You know, it is a, it's, a, it's a complicated business. You've got to get on with a lot of people and sometimes they're very hard to get on with. Personality dynamics fascinate me in every part of life and, and it's the same with, with politics because, as you mentioned, that you're a different character to someone from another electorate and that person is so totally different to someone elected from another place of Australia. We all fall under the umbrella of being Australians but there's so much diversity throughout Australia, not just a geographical sense and a lifestyle sense, but also a background, a personality sense, how you're shaped as a, as a human being. And in politics, it, it fascinates me because you're all in this one building and you're all bumping into each other on a day-to-day basis. And ordinarily, you might not even blink at a person who you're having to coexist with, but you simply have to. How do you get across the personality dynamic of, of different people and consider that when you're trying to do things that you're trying to do? Well, I mean, I describe in my book how the parliament works as a physical space. You know, the, uh, the, the, our parliament house, the, well, the new parliament house, which was opened in 1988, uh, is a vast building. And it's one of those buildings whose uh, form does not follow the, the function. It actually frustrates the function because it's too big. So, you know, the House of Reps wing is way down one end of the vast building, the Senate wing's down the other, the ministerial wing's at the back, and they're all separated by huge distances. Uh, people, there, aren't, there isn't much in the way of collision space. So senators don't often socialise or mix with or bump into members of the House. And even uh, on a busy parliamentary sitting day, you can walk from one end of the building to the other and pass hardly anyone in the corridor. So, you know, that, that, makes, it, that makes it a very unconvivial place uh, and a very isolating place. It's, a, it's actually a really bad, really bad design. I mean, the problem is, um, you know, we'll be stuck with it for the next 300 years. So <laughs> it's not much, we, not a lot 
we can do about it. Lucy had some good ideas, I must say, about, you know, how you could maybe put a, you know, put a sort of a cafe or a proper restaurant somewhere in the building in the middle. You know, it's just it literally is people are living in their little offices. They're quite big offices, actually, uh, and all isolated one from the other. So, so it, is, it, it is not a healthy environment. Just on the, the personality dynamics, I find them absolutely fascinating in all walks of life and especially politics where things seem to be a little heightened. So Scott Morrison, who throughout the book, you mentioned how well you get on and you had a great working relationship. You point at that a, a number of times in the book, but the flip side is that sometimes Scott was saying things to you that you described as um, dripping with hypocrisy. How do you balance those two trains of thought about the one person? Well, I mean, it, nobody is, you know, everyone is complex. Nobody, no individual is is uh, perfect, I suppose. Um, let, well, let, let me talk, let, why don't I talk a little bit about trust? That's what you said you wanted to discuss. So let me yeah. express a few things. So the first thing you've got to do is assess, when you're dealing with people, is assess their capabilities, right? Uh, you know, if a person... Some people are strong physically, you know, they can carry heavy loads. Some people are tall and can reach the highest shelf. You know, some people are great swimmers, some people aren't. And the same goes with strength of character. Some people have the character that enables them to stick to their word in tough times. Other people are weak and no matter how, you know, they can no more stick with you in tough times than a, you know, weak person could carry 75 kilos on their back up a steep hill. Um, some people are just naturally uh, duplicitous and can't help themselves. And you see quite a few of them in politics where they literally will deceive everybody, they, everyone they deal with. You, you see more of this in politics than you do in business. Some people are almost compulsive liars and and in the sense that's probably not the right term I mean I'm not a psychologist or anything like that so I'm an amateur but but you know the sort of person who basically has no regard for the truth for the facts Mm. so will say whatever they think is best for them or which will please the listener the most and doesn't actually care about whether something is what they're saying is accurate or not There's quite a lot of that in politics. And one of the problems, and I discuss this in the book, is that we don't hold, and I think think the society and the media in particular are failing in this massively at the moment, we do not hold politics and politicians to account for uh, accuracy and, you know, for holding them to account when they're telling lies. I mean, you know, the classic example during my time as Prime Minister was in the 2016 election when Shorten got away with that Mediscare, you know, campaign where he was saying that we were going, you know, the coalition was going to sell Medicare and even to the point of sending out text messages to old people, you know, which purported to come from Medicare saying, you know, the Liberals are going to sell Medicare. Now, this is ludicrous. You couldn't, I mean, even if you wanted to sell Medicare, you couldn't sell it, okay? You know, it's a government service. In those days it was you know, spending about $25, 26000000000 billion a year. So it's, 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 it's unsaleable. It's not like a road or a bridge or, a, you know, I don't know, um, you know, an insurance company or something. So it was ludicrous and was regarded as ludicrous by most people. 
but it preyed on the anxieties, as Labor knew it would, of older, poorer, sicker people. And it did have a, it had a very, very big impact in the 2016 election. It was a very, very clever lie. Now, Shorten was never really criticised for that in the media. Some, some people did, but most of the media actually gave him a pat on the back for being so clever. So this is the problem. So if you make politics completely value-free uh, and fact-free, uh, then people will be encouraged to say anything they like. They'll just make stuff up, and, they, and, and increasingly I fear they do. Yeah, and it gets back to the electorate, and as a, a normal person of the electorate, I, I get the feeling that the, the general consensus is, and it, it sounds very flippant, but they're all the same. <laughs> so well, they're, not, they're not all the same. I mean, some people are, some people take, you know, the facts more carefully than others. I mean, you know, every time I did question time, so what is question time? Question time goes for an hour and 10 minutes normally from 2pm to 10 past three. Uh, and there are generally 10 questions from the government members to the government ministers, which are usually, which they call Dorothy Dixes. They're normally mm. fairly predictable. And there are 10 from the opposition and the crossbench and they tend to be, they are, you know, not foreshadowed. They're questions without notice and they, you know, they generally are more critical. Um, but as Prime Minister, you can get asked about anything. And so, you know, no one can have every figure in their head so you end up with a big folder, you know, this big of all the, you know, talking points and notes on every conceivable area. And, um, uh, but, you know, at the end of question time, I'd get back to my office and one of the first things I'd say is, you know, did I get anything wrong? Did I get a fact wrong? And I, my office were under instructions. If I stood up mm. and got something wrong to send me a, you know, a text message immediately so that I could get up and correct it. And, you know, I'd, 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 you'd find in the Hansards I did that from time to time before I brought question time to an end, I'd get up and say, Mr Speaker, you know, I said earlier that GDP figure was, you know, 3.1%. It's actually 2.5% or something. You know, I would correct things because I took that seriously. I tell you, a lot of people in politics don't. They are honestly quite careless about it. And because they don't get picked up uh, by it, that then leads you into you go from careless careless falsehoods or careless inaccuracy to deliberate inaccuracy. And that's, you know, that, that is a, that's a real problem. You touched on it there about trusting yourself. And my question was loaded with the, something you mentioned there about you cannot possibly, no human being can possibly be across all the detail, especially when you're in the top job, because there's, there's so much detail about that, about every single policy decision or everything that comes before parliament or everything in life. How do you actually trust yourself that you're making the right call? Well, they're two different. I mean, the there are two different things. I mean, one is when you're being asked questions in Parliament or by the media. You know, being able to get the answer right is is a you know get the right having the right facts at your fingertips can often be challenging. And you know, every now and then I would say, look, I don't know. I'll you know I'll get back to you. Uh, but you know, you, that's no one likes doing that because you get criticised for that. Um, in terms of making the right decisions, well, look, I, I had a different approach to decision making to a lot of to quite a lot of other prime ministers. 
um, which was, I was very, it, I mean, what I'm about to tell you to your listeners, will they'll say, crops, that's obvious. Why is this a big deal? But it honestly is unusual. I did not front run policies in the media. Uh, my approach was to get all of the options on the table, you know, to we're addressing housing affordability, right, or whatever the problem may be. Mm. All of the options on the table, understand them all, thrash them out, listen carefully to everyone's point of view and then make a decision and then announce the decision at a time and a manner of your choosing. And so I, I you know, I, was, I would always try to get, make myself well-informed. So I would generally get, and this is a ha- habit I've had all my life, I'd get in front of the people who had the most knowledge. So in Canberra, uh, if you're the Prime Minister, the secretaries of the public service departments always want to be you know, in the office briefing the PM, you know, that's naturally. Uh, but they often don't know what they're talking about. Well, they often don't know as much as somebody a couple of rungs further down who's actually doing the work. Mm. I mean, I, I learnt this when I was, you know, for example, before I was PM, when I was doing a lot of research on communications and broadband systems around the world, um, and, you know, I did this at my own expense, I might add, I would go somewhere and I would try to avoid seeing the chief executive or the chairman of a telco. I mean, if I had to see them, I'd, you know, just go and say hi to be respectful. Be nice. But I wanted to find the engineers who are actually down in the pits doing the work. That's how I came to get to understand it, you know, understand that, those technologies. Uh, And it's, it's like that everywhere. You've got to find the people that know what they're talking about because you find in big hierarchical organisations, there'll be someone about there that knows what they're talking about and then they report to the next level up, the next level up, the next level up, the next level up. By the time you get to the top, it's been so dumbed down and and simplified that they've only got a very uh, imperfect understanding of it. It sort of goes from being a very precise, detailed, uh, you know, photographic painting to by the end it becomes very light, late Lloyd Reese, if you know what I mean, just a few blurs. <laughs> uh, so, so you've got to you, you've got to get the de- get to the people who have the detail, and that's how you trust yourself is is being across the the detail from the right sources. You've also, Adam, the other thing that's important again, I described this in the book in respect to the innovation agenda. You know, you've got to be prepared to acknowledge that you may not get things right. You know, people will, journalists particularly, well, are they always interested in these gotcha moments, you know. I mean, they basically, you know, the journalists see their mission in Canberra as being, you know, they're not generally interested in policy. They're very interested in personality and they particularly like trapping politicians into, you know, what they call gotcha moments, you know. And so the classic one is... Um, and, you know, the dumbest question is, you know, will you rule in rule this out or, you know, will you rule out doing X? And then you say, well, I'm looking at every option. Ah, Turnbull refuses to rule out X. Therefore, he must be about to do X, you know. Mm-hmm. And you, it, it's all of that. It is, it's borderline moronic, a lot of that interrogation. But one of the obvious questions is, will this work? And when I did the innovation agenda... Uh, again, which was about 20 really important part of our economic policy and a very successful one too, I might say. Uh, 
Um, we, I was asked if these, you know, will these measures work? And I said, well, look, some of them won't. Some of them won't. Uh, and those that don't will dump. Those that do well will do more of. And if we find somebody else achieving the objectives we're trying to achieve in a better way, we will shamelessly plagiarise them. Well, you can do that in public policy. Obviously, can't go around plagiarising people in in technology or literature. But, um, you know, that's the... That, and that's really important because, you know, this is... You see this with the response to the COVID virus at the moment. I mean, you know, the truth is no-one really knows whether these measures are right. You know, I mean, there's no playbook. We haven't done this 20 times before where we can say, we've got this nailed, we know exactly what to do. So you're basically, uh, in this situation, as you are in so many situations in in business and in politics, you're basically in a state, you're in beta. And so you're saying, right, we're going to do this. We think this will work. We're going to monitor it very carefully and we will tweak it depending on our experience. And that's, you know, that's sensible, but you've got to be very clear and make pe- bring people into your confidence. And they'll understand that because everyone knows in their own lives. I mean, you know, there aren't too many people that get out of bed in the morning and say, I know the answer to absolutely everything, you know, and every problem. And anyone who does that is, uh, is uh, obviously deluded. And going to have a very long day. Twisting it back to the central theme here, is unity easier in opposition than in power with everything that's going on behind the scenes? Well, historically it's easier in government. A unity is easier in government than in opposition because in government, you know, you've got a lot of benefits. You know, you've got ministers and even if you're not a minister, you're on the back bench, you've got access to ministers, you can get things done. So normally uh, the fear of being tipped out of government um, makes people less inclined to rock the boat unless they feel they have to change the leadership in order to stay in government, right, which is a big motivator. The the problem I faced with the right wing of my party, and this is, you know, Abbott and Dutton and, you know, various others that I talk about in the book, is that they essentially got themselves into this crazy position where they wanted to bring down the government and were as and and frankly would have preferred Shorten to be prime minister than me. Uh, this was you know I know this sounds nuts, completely nuts, but if you you know you can see uh, that was the agenda, uh, and that's very hard to deal with because then you're dealing with people who are you know who essentially um, basically prepared to blow the joint up unless they get what they want. Because there's this. Amazing for me, it's the quote of the book on page four hundred and thirty-eight, where you detail what was going on when the issue of trust became a, a massive issue for yourself in particular and the the Australian government. Was Corman and Dutton told me not to trust Julie Bishop and George Brandis. George Brandis and Christopher Pine told me not to trust Corman and Dutton. Barnaby Joyce told me not to trust any of them, and everybody told me not to trust Scott Morrison. I trusted them all, some more warily than others. That just Sounds like there's too much to comprehend there when you're actually trying to run a country. Well, that's true, but that that is that there is nobody in my government in or in the part in that coalition at that time that could honestly dissent from what I've said there. That is literally that is a 
sort of a penetrating glimpse of the obvious, but that, that was the reality. So that makes it a very challenging environment because you're dealing with people who, I mean, some of whom I, I mean, look, I have to say that Christopher and George and Julie were always very solid supporters of mine, uh, not so the others. Um, but you are literally being, you're surrounded by people who you either know you can't trust or you're being told you, you shouldn't trust. And then you have to work out the actual truth of the matter. When that truth drops, what's the, the feeling like in the pit of your stomach when you think you've known someone and it's being proven that perhaps it's going down a, a slightly different path? Not a totally different path, but Look, a slightly I'm, different path. I'm quite, I've been, I, by the time I became Prime Minister, I've been in Parliament for a while and I was quite hardened to the reality of politics. So it was hard, difficult to surprise me with, too, with much. And I had been disappointed by people over the years before. So, look, you know, you just, it's just, you know what, Adam, it is the environment in which you're operating. You know, you, you can't, um, you know, there, there's an old saying variously attributed to Winston Churchill or Enoch Powell that a, a politician who complains about the newspapers is like a sailor who complains about the sea. And it, it's the same thing, really. I mean, if you complain about your the fact that colleagues are unreliable and untrustworthy, well, yeah, uh, that is true, that that's what, you know, politicians generally are like that or very often are like that. What I found odd was people doing, you know, uh, untrustworthy things or behaving in an untrustworthy way for no point. I could understand somebody, you know, uh, briefing against me or, you know, trying to, you know, organise against me. If it, if I could understand it, if it was being done with a rational purpose, it may be, you know, that that at least then you say, okay, well, that's what they're trying to achieve. I'm not, I'm not saying it was a good idea or virtuous or anything like that. But so much of what was done, so much of what gets done in politics, seems to me to be pointless. Uh, you know, and this is this is really the point I made about um, a lot of Scots um, front running on economic policy, which is you know very well known at the time, and we just couldn't work it out. What is the point of floating various economic options in the media in advance? Because they just get they just get picked off one at a time. You know, it was it was literally. Um, a matter of, as I describe in the book, a matter of complete bemusement to 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 me and Corman in particular, you know. So, uh, yeah, so, the, you know, as I say, politicians don't always act rationally. How often, and this might seem like a really general question, but it's just to put it in context of for us who are outside politics to try and understand in life in general, you, you're going to trust someone and then you're going to find out that you perhaps shouldn't have. How often does a misjudgment of character happen in politics as opposed to just normal everyday life? Well, the thing about in politics is that you're, you're relying on people, you know, you're dealing with a lot more people than you are in everyday life, for a start. Mm. You know, you're in a much more contested environment and you're doing everything in public. So, you know, if you have a, a disappointing outcome in a business deal, by and large, that will, you know, be a matter between you, your 
shareholders, your your lenders, you know, your partners. If something goes wrong politically, you know, it's on the evening news, it's on every website, social media stream. You know, it is. You, you it's. It, it's out there. So that that's one of the reasons politics is such a stressful business because it is all so public. There's no sort of private um, moments. So it's what you're saying is it's a lot easier in business to get things done more effectively than it is in politics, unfortunately. Well, g- generally it is. I mean, it's a but you're operating within a narrower fa- narrower compass. Yeah, and and you also in business your KPIs are much clearer. You know, your KPIs are what you know bottom line. Are we making money? If we are, then that's good. If we're not, we better change something. Is our share price going up? Then we're doing okay. If it's going down, we've got to do something about it. Um, those are all fairly comprehensible. So with politics, um, you, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, you, you may have policies that are popular, but they might actually be really bad, you know, really bad. You know, the the some of the... Um, more populist rhetoric uh, that you see, you have seen in Australia from time to time, you're seeing particularly in the, particularly in the United States, is really counterproductive. You know, protectionism, for example, particularly for a country like Australia, uh, would be really counterproductive. You know, we benefit from free trade and open markets, but protectionism would be very popular until such time as people realised it was putting them out of work. You know, so so something can be some an announcement, a policy can sound great, or when I say great, can sound popular, uh, and it can be popular, but you've got to then live with the longer term consequences, and they could they can be very very adverse. You worked with Kerry Packer for a time, and for the listeners that um, weren't around really as as adults and across who Kerry Packer was, I can only advise to read about this guy and and learn about Kerry Packer because he's quite an extraordinary character in Australian history. But you worked with Mr Packer for a time. How would he have survived in politics? I don't think Kerry was really ever suited to the democratic process. The compromise wasn't his second nature, (laughs) uh, to say the least. He preferred to be the the dictator, the boss. Um, Having said that, he had, despite the fact that he was this third-generation media mogul, um, you know, hugely rich, uh, had very exotic interests and tastes and, you know, gambled at a gargantuan scale and, you know, played polo and had, you know, all sorts of sort of uh, vices and foibles and interests of the super-rich. Despite all that, he had a very good understanding for popular taste and popular culture, he, which is why he was very good in the television business, right? So because he knew, he knew what would rate, what would work on TV. So, you know, you, you don't have to be, you know, necessarily a sort of man of the people uh, to understand what the people will want to watch. Kerry, like most very rich people, preferred to control politicians, <laughs> and uh, and ideally own them to some extent or other. Fair enough. And a last one, people, not me by the way, but people might seek your advice in the future about politics and, and life within it. Um, will it be wary advice or optimistic advice? Well, it'll be honest advice. Um, I mean, 
you know, politics is a very, look, politics is a very important business. It's a very tough business, though. Let's just talk about federal politics. The first thing is that you, with the best will in the world, unless you live in, represent a seat in Canberra, you'll be away from home for about a third, at least a third of the year, more likely half. And if you're a minister, it could be two thirds or more. Australia is a big country. And, you know, even if you're the prime minister and you've got your own plane, um, you're away from home a lot. So, uh, so that's a very important thing um, to bear in mind. It means uh, that it is terribly disruptive of family life. So if you've got, uh, you know, a wife or a husband and kids, your partner is going to have to do most of the heavy lifting and you're going to be away from home a huge amount. And that is also very difficult. Now, I was lucky in that I went into Parliament when I was 50. Uh, Lucy was, you know, very supportive. Uh, she was working uh, in any event. And our, both our kids were grown up. You know, they were, in fact, Alex wasn't even in Australia. He was studying overseas. Daisy was at uni. So, uh, but, you know, doing politics with small kids is very tough. It's a, uh, it's a pretty unforgiving business. I mean... Inevitably, you get, uh, you know, many more brickbats than you do bouquets. But, you know, you shouldn't go into it for that reason. Um, the important thing is, however, is if, if you're out of the room, you're out of the deal. History is made by those who turn up. So, you know, you've got to, if you want to make a political impact, there's no better way to do it than in Parliament. Well, hopefully... In years to come, we can learn from what's happened, say, in the last 10 years. But one thing, I'll, I'll just end with this story. Malcolm, the reason there is a peacock politics, why I'm doing this to try and educate myself and a few others about how Australian politics works is I was sitting there in August 2018 as you were standing there in that forecourt at uh, Parliament House saying goodbye, thinking what on earth is going on with Australian politics? So that's what's prompted this series. So in a roundabout, strange, strange way, um, you're a bit of a catalyst for all this. So... I guess I say thanks. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Thanks a lot, Adam. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Malcolm. Cheers. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.